Welcome to this place of worship and thanksgiving. It's not thanksgiving the season exactly, but we are going to celebrate various things this morning in our first song and be thankful. That is a characteristic of being a Christian, apparently, is being thankful. So thankful for the beautiful creation, thankful for our relationships, human relationships, thankful for the church, a special set of relationships, and thankful for our relationship with God. Because it's not just gifts that God gives us, but God himself, who is the gift. And all these things we want to be celebrating with gratitude this morning. So please sing with us for the beauty of the earth, number 560. And we've got verse 2 for the ladies, verse 4 for the men. Sometimes we are envious, covetous, or some other issue in our heart. And our scripture reading this morning from Psalm 10 
gives expression to some of that feeling of envy, wishing things could be different. Psalm 10, verses 1 through 11. Why, Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In his arrogance, the wicked man hunts down the weak who are caught in the schemes he devises. He boasts about the cravings of his heart. He blesses the greedy and reviles the Lord. In his pride, the wicked man does not seek him. In all his thoughts, there is no room for God. His ways are always prosperous. Your laws are rejected by him. He sneers at all his enemies. He says to himself, nothing will ever shake me. He swears no one will ever do me harm. His mouth is full of lies and threats. Trouble and evil are under his tongue. He lies in wait near the villages. From ambush, he murders the innocent. His eyes watch in secret for his victims. Like a lion in cover, he lies in wait. He lies in wait to catch the helpless. He catches the helpless and drags them off in his net. His victims are crushed. They collapse. They fall under his strength. He says to himself, God will never notice. He covers his face and never sees. And then we have to confess that we also need God's mercy. Jesus, I've forgotten the words that you have spoken, promises that burned within my heart have now grown dim. With a doubting heart I follow the paths of earthly wisdom. Forgive me for my unbelief, renew the fire
God is merciful through Christ. And so we can sing with confidence of all the gifts and blessings that he gives us. What gift of grace is Jesus, my Redeemer? There is no more for heaven now to give. He is my joy, my righteousness and freedom, my steadfast love, my deep and boundless peace. To this I
Exodus passage this morning is from Exodus 20, verses 2 and 17. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. First off, it's good to be back with you all. We had a wonderful vacation last week. Uh, we went out to West Hawk Lake and two weeks ago now. Oh, time flies, doesn't it? We went off to West Hawk Lake and it was a wonderfully relaxing and rejuvenating time. We found out that little Noel sure has an absolute love of rocks because we were in the shield, much more so than we enjoyed watching her run on those rocks in the shield just straight up 30 feet in the air, not even a care in the world, us running after. By chance, Glenn Lowen from uh, Portage Evangelical, his family was there too, and I think we could hear him laughing at us when we were just trying our best <laughs> wrangle little Noel the entire time, but it was a good time. So thanks for praying for us while we were there. Now I have a couple announcements for you. Next week, uh, Sunday School is going to kick off. So Find yourself here at 9.45 in the morning. That is when we are going to have our Sunday school kickoff, Lyndon tells me, and it is going to be a good time. There's going to be plenty of explanations of how Sunday school is going to work this way uh, this year. It's going to be a little bit different, but I, I am excited uh, for the vision that he has and that he's bringing to it. So 
9.45, next Sunday. Also next Sunday, uh, make sure to bring a picnic lunch and uh, chairs because after the service is done, we're going to be having a picnic outside as long as that is uh, allowable because of the weather. Uh, if it isn't all of a sudden, then we'll be clearing everything out of the back and having those same chairs and those same picnic blankets all over uh, the auditorium, and we're going to be having our picnic inside. And so one way or the other, it'll be a good time. Uh, also next Sunday, there is going to be a communion, so uh, please work to put yourself in a good place for that. And also there is going to be a deacon uh, installation, as well as a uh, saying thank you uh, to Sheldon and Linda, who have moved out of the role, the deacon installation for uh, David and Tammy. So it is going to be a wonderfully fun-filled uh, Sunday next Sunday, uh, and so come on out, 9.45. Uh, next, small group sign-up. Uh, Dakota told me she wants to get those groups together, so if you have not done your sign-ups yet, then there is a sign-up sheet on that back table. Uh, make sure to put your name down there. All right, I think that is all for announcements. And so, with all of those things said, let's go now into a time of prayer. Our God, we come before you this morning with many things on our hearts. And the first one is after a summer of rest, a summer of relaxation. Soon school will be starting up again. We have a number of teachers, administrators, custodians, students, people involved with school, either on the primary or secondary level in this church or connected to it. And God, we, we want to pray for each one of them. This is going to be a different kind of year. This is going to be a year where there are questions that won't be answered until weeks after the answer should have come. It's going to be a year that's filled with not quite knowing what the next day will bring. And so we pray for each one of these people. And we pray for our schools just in general as they look to struggle with this. God, that bringing up of the next generation, that is an important, important part of everything. And God, we see the value in what all of these people are doing. And so we pray, be with them. Lord, we pray, be their strength. Lord, we pray, walk with them for whatever the future may hold. Lord, this we put before you. And God, we also want to thank you so very much for, it seems like it has come up every Sunday for the last three months, but we want to thank you for the weather. We want to thank you that it doesn't seem like a weird thing that rain is coming again. It's such a small thing any other year, but then this year it means the world. And so, God, we say thank you for that. 
And now, as the last of the fields are looking to come up over the next couple months, Lord, we pray safety with our farmers as they do that. And Lord, we pray that it will, even though it has been such a terrible summer, it will still be a good harvest. And God, we want to pray for our church as well. God, we want to pray for next Sunday when Sunday school is going to kick off. We want to pray for next Sunday when communion will be. We want to pray for next Sunday when our new deacons will be installed. In many ways, the next chapter of our church begins next Sunday. And so, Lord, we pray, be with us. Lord, we pray, make yourself seen. Lord, we pray, let your wisdom be known. And make this year coming and the years following it a bountiful harvest, a blessing on us like we have never known before. God, all of these things we bring before you this morning, we know that you are a God beyond all else, yet you are also a God that loves us. And so we put these cares with you. Amen. And just like that, I'm going to try to relearn how to preach again. It always seems like if I've been away from it for a couple days, then I automatically think I've forgotten everything there is to know about it. And yet somehow, when you get into the thick of it, then it comes back. But we are into the final two commandments now, or I suppose actually we're into commandment number eight and then also commandment number ten. Eight being don't steal and ten, the one we're going to be talking about today being don't covet. They overlap quite a bit, but they are, they are different. And the implications of not coveting, the one we're going to be talking about today, are actually much broader. So it's going to be the one we talk about today and we're going to finish up on stealing next Sunday. So, coveting, what is it? Why should we not do it? What does this commandment mean that we Christians should be for? And what does it mean that we should live like as a response? Those have been the questions that we have been trying to answer every outing into our series this whole summer on the Ten Commandments. And the best way to answer those questions when they come to coveting is just to jump right in. And... I say jump right into the thick of it. That's kind of what I'm thinking, because there's a lot to clear up when it comes to this commandment to, to coveting. And I think the reason there is a lot to clean up and clear up as to what it means is because I think that the way we think of coveting today versus how the Bible thinks about it are, are different things. Sure, I think we would all agree it's not a good thing to covet. We are all going to say that in our minds. But to put it on the list next to the other great sins like murdering and adultery, that, that is blowing it out of proportion. I think in my mind when I came into this sermon, that was something that was going on constant repeat. Like coveting is bad, but why are we putting it next to literally murdering people in terms of severity? Does it really belong on there? And as we're going to see in a bit, coveting after delving through all sorts of stuff, Coveting deserves to be on this list. 
It deserves its place on it. It deserves its place as the cap of the list, even. And I believe that I can identify also the reason why it surprises us that it deserves all of that intensity as well. And it has to do with the difference between how we think of coveting today as compared to how the people in Moses' time would have understood that term. I think we can all agree that coveting is a word that we don't use terribly much anymore. I mean, it's still common enough that we have a general understanding of its meaning, but I think to most of us, it more or less is at this point where the common understanding of that word, to covet, is just as another synonym for jealousy. I am jealous of my neighbor because they have a sweet house. I see it, I think it's awesome, and I wish to have that house too. I think when we use that understanding of coveting, when we, when we talk about it. It's more of just jealousy. And while I think that understanding of what it means to covet gets us about 70% of the way to what the Bible is talking about, it does come up short in one very particular way, and that is just the intensity of it. And to show you what I mean, I think we're going to do just a quick thing. What do you think of when you think of the word jealousy? For me, I think of a personal experience when I was, how tall are you when you're 10? About that tall? <laughs> no, no. Uh, that's grade five? <laughs> I hit six feet when I was in grade six, so <laughs> about here, let's say. <laughs> but when I think of jealousy, I think of when I was going into grade six, and my friend's parents got him a brand spanking new Nintendo 64, and that was the toy to get, let me tell you. Uh, if you've never played Mario 64 to this day, that is just an absolutely amazing game, and I, I was very jealous of him. It most certainly did impact our friendship to the extent that I was jealous of him. I would go over to his house, and I think I would play it more than actually talking to him, and uh, that, now in hindsight, it makes sense why my parents didn't want to get one for us, actually. Now that I'm saying it out loud, standing here, that makes perfect sense. But when I think of jealousy, that's, that's what I think of. I think, I think of it like that. When I think of coveting, that was how I would think about it in terms of being kind of a childish thing, in terms of being an obsessive thing. Uh, but... Also, a thing that would impact your relationship, but I mean, me and my friend from back then that got his Nintendo 64, we're still friends to this day, so clearly it's also not that big a deal. Your definition may vary, your experiences may vary, but as you likely suspect, that's, that's not how coveting should be understood. I heard a short story a while back that actually sums what the sin of coveting is uh, really well. It's from the realm of the philosophy of computer science of all places. That, that is an actual field of study that I learned about. And probably some of you would have heard this story before. But it's a, it's a thought experiment from a Swedish philosopher named Nick Bostrom. Uh, and it illustrates a possible problem with, he's using it to talk about artificial intelligence. But strangely, it talks about the problem with coveting very, very well. I'm going to adapt it to you so we're not 
talking just about this for the next 40 minutes, but imagine you are someone who has unlimited resources and you really like paper clips. You can't get enough of them. You, you covet them. That's what we're talking about. That's this paper clips are your life. So you decide to make it your life's work to get as many of those paper clips as you possibly can. And to begin, you do the obvious thing. You go to a store and you buy up their stock of paper clips. And that is a good number, but soon you find that it's just not enough for a life's work. So you go to every other store that you can find and you buy up all their stocks as well. Still not enough paper clips. So in your despair, you look at your paper clips and you realize something. They're just made out of iron wire, aren't they? You can totally make those yourself. So then you buy up all of the iron wire that you can find in all of those stores until eventually you run out of that as well. Well, then what do you do? You need more wire to make more paper clips. Well, why don't you buy up some ore and a machine to make more wire to make more paper clips? Well, then you run up out of the ore that's all out of the ground. So then you can buy some mines to get more ore to make more wire to make more paper clips. Not enough? Well, there are a ton of things that are made out of iron in the world, aren't there? There are cars, there are buildings, there are bridges, even people have four grams per adult in them. And then what? Well, the entire core of the planet is made out of iron as well, don't you know? And before you know it, by choosing to focus your life solely on something as innocuous as acquiring paper clips, all of civilization and then the whole of the world itself is destroyed. All the relationships you've ever had and can ever have. And in its place, there is a mountain of paper clips reaching outside of the solar system itself. Now that's kind of a really silly and existentially horrifying thought experiment. I would expect nothing else from 21st century philosophers, but now you may be wondering what this actually has to do with understanding how our understanding of jealousy differs from coveting and the commandment and what it's against. Well, with that story in mind, let's have a look at the examples of coveting in the Bible, or more precisely, just the examples in the book of Genesis, because otherwise we're going to be here for a while. This is a sin that rears its head again and again. One of the first times we come across it, it is in Genesis 4 where we read the story of Cain and Abel. And in it, Abel receives God's favor, to which Cain grows covetousness of, covetous of that favor. And in time, it absolutely destroys his relationship with his brother, and he actually kills him for it. Next, how about Genesis 34? In that story, we read a horrifying story of Jacob's daughter and a young man from a nearby city. We read that this young man sees Jacob's daughter from a distance and grows covetous of her, and in time, this young man cannot contain himself, and so he takes her by force, to which the brothers retaliate, and in the end, an entire city's worth of men is put to death. And one more. How about Genesis 37? There we read Jacob's son, Joseph, who is in an echo of the story of Cain and Abel. The story of Cain and Abel echoes a number of times throughout the book of Genesis. But in, in Joseph's story, he finds great favor in his father's eyes. 
And in time, his brothers grow covetousness, covetous of his status, to which they turn on him, they beat him, they rob him, and they throw him down a well before they sell him into slavery. Sell their own brother into slavery. Now, what are some things that you notice from each of those stories? Some things that they all have in common about what they say about what it means to covet. I have three big ones. One is that coveting in these stories was not just something that happened. It grows. It festers into something terrible over time. In some of these stories, it happens quicker than in others, but that is a part of all three of these. Coveting came to corrupt those struggling with it. Cain struggles for a while before he kills his brother. The young man sees Jacob's daughter and acts horribly after a while. Joseph's brothers live with the unfairness of their father for years before they throw their brother down the well. Next two, and here is probably the biggest difference between coveting and jealousy, by my figuring. Jealousy is a feeling that you have toward a person that you see as a person like you are. There is some amount of seeing a person personhood that's required to be jealous of them because they have something that you don't that requires some amount of recognition of them. But from these stories, I would argue that coveting isn't really something that you feel towards someone else who you think of as a human being. It's a feeling instead towards what you perceive as a thing. Cain coveted God's favor like Joseph's brothers coveted their father's favor. What about the story of Jacob's daughter, you may ask? Though she is a person. And whenever we read that story, we need to remember she is a person. If you read it, you see that he does not covet her because of who she is, but instead only because of what he sees from a distance. She is an object to him in that story. And this is an important part to understanding why coveting is so bad. It's, it's hard to treat people terribly if you think that they're people. But it's easy to treat objects like objects. It's easy to treat things that you think of as objects like they're nothing at all. That's what dehumanizing does. It takes a person and turns it into a thing. And finally, I would say number three. In these stories, we see that coveting causes a warping of good priorities. Normally, your brother would be precious to you. Normally, human life is valuable, but due to the effects of coveting in these stories, the thing that is desired grows to supersede in importance everything else to you. Murder comes to make sense to Cain because he covets God's favor so much as to drive him mad. Taking Jacob's daughter by force, even though she is a human being who has brothers that this guy surely knows will try to kill him, makes sense to that young man because he covets what he sees to that extent. Selling Joseph into slavery makes sense because the brothers covet their father's favor to the extent as to not care just how terrible what they are doing actually is. The thing each coveted became their paperclip from our story before. And it became more important to them to get what they desired to get more paperclips 
than to let the world around them stay standing. The problem with coveting in the eyes of the Bible is not that it's just childish jealousy over a Nintendo 64. It's that the longer it's left to fester, the more simplified and objectified the world and the people in it become to the one coveting until everything is reoriented in their minds to be about getting that thing that they want. And when that happens, the world is torn apart. And I mean that literally because there is another story in the book of Genesis that also deals with coveting. You can find it in chapter 3 where we read that Adam covets the abilities of God that the snake points out to him, figuring that if he had them, he could be like God himself. And the outcome of that story is why we've been talking about the Ten Commandments for the last summer in the first place. So why does coveting belong on the list of the Ten Commandments? Because far from being just some childish and insignificant feeling, if it's left unchecked, It is the sin that dehumanizes others and reprioritizes our lives to the point that doing terrible things to the world and others for the end of getting what we desire isn't seem as wrong to us anymore. Why should we not covet? Because by letting that sin go unchecked, it will drive us to destroy our relationships with God, with our community, with ourselves, and the world. And more likely than not, we won't even catch what we are doing is a problem until it is way too late. So, my brothers and sisters in Christ, I tell you, do not covet. So if being against coveting is something that we can all agree should be the case in our lives, I think at this point we're all on board with that, What does that mean that we as Christians should be for? And here I suspect that we as believers actually already know the answer to that. Because Jesus spends a fair amount of time talking about exactly this problem. Or more specifically, the problem of placing other things other than God in a position in our lives where they dictate how we live. We actually talked about it three months ago. He talks about that in the passage of the Sermon on the Mount that deals with the one thing that people covet more than anything else, money. You can read it in Matthew 6, 24. You cannot have two masters, he says. Either you will love one and hate the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. To be a people against coveting, I would say, coveting which always acts like a bad master in our life, seeking to dictate how we live our day-to-day in the worst of possible ways. To be against that, to be against coveting, has to mean that we as Christians are to be a people for following instead the right master over our lives. As Christians, to be against having whatever it is we covet, be the master that dictates how our days go, is to be against having something other than God lead our lives. And as such, as Christians, Jesus tells us in this passage, 
Matthew 6, 24, to be against coveting is to be for having God be the master of your life. And that, that comes with some pretty big implications for how we live our lives. It is not wrong to want things. Don't take that from what we're talking about today. It is not wrong even to want things that your neighbor has. That's a major part of how we find new stuff in the world and learn about our own likes and dislikes. More than that, liking things you see from your neighbors, that's a major part of how community works. Who hasn't gone to watch a movie at their friend's house with a big TV and figure that they wish they had one so the party could be at your place next time? Or thinking in a different way altogether, who hasn't, when they were young, hit it off with somebody unavailable to which you learn new things about just what it is you were looking for in a spouse in the future? It isn't wrong to like things or to want them even, but when that wanting starts to dictate how your life plays out, that is when it becomes a problem. When it starts to dictate how you see and value people and the world around you in a negative way, that's when it becomes a problem. Because no master save for one, Jesus tells us, has the good of community, you and the world, as the way they lead those that follow them. And that one master is God. And so to make something that you covet your master, to make some, anything other than God your master, but to make something that you are coveting your master, that will always lead you to problems because it is leading you in a way that God absolutely is not. But unfortunately, as we all know, it is often really hard to tell when something moves from being simply liked or wanted to, moving a, to becoming a covetous master over our lives. That is a hard thing to identify because it happens so slowly. It happens so smoothly that we don't even think to look for it. But thankfully, it's not impossible. For when a master orders a servant about, that has a pretty big impact on their time and on their finances and on their general outlook of the world as well. If you want to find out what is a master over you, I suggest you make this following a practice in your life. In prayerful reflection, you ask yourself, where is it that you spend your time? And you ask yourself that regularly. You only have so many hours in the day, and so when you choose to spend them, and where you choose to spend them, that says a lot about the things that you value. It says a lot about what it is that guides your life. We saw from the stories of the Bible above that covetousness is something that it grows over time. So if you make it a practice in your life to keep an eye on how you spend your time, you will notice when things begin to take over. The same thing goes for finances. We all only have so much money, and it tends to go to the things that we value. How have the things that you've been spending your money on over time changed? If you are looking to see if something has taken over your life, that, that is a place that will more likely than not be where you will see that crop up early. Next, how about your outlook? How do you think 
of the world and the people that you know in it. As we saw in the stories above, to covet something is to eventually objectify it. And if there is someone that you have your eyes for or someone who stands in the way of something that you want that just... Then your relationship with those people as time passes will change from healthy to problematic. You will find the things that you like and that you dislike about them will become in your mind who they are. And the opposite traits will in time all but disappear. You will find in your fantasies of them that they become less active players and more just passive participants. You will find that they go in your thinking from people like you to like characters in a movie, two-dimensional, less than human. So ask yourself, how is it that you have thought about these people and how has that changed over time? In that question, you will see how if something you desire has grown to the point where it becomes a master over you, it changes how you see others. But say you've done all that, and as a result, you notice that there is a problem creeping up. What do you do then? Well, don't just let it go unaddressed, hoping that it'll peter out is one thing. Look at the stories from Scripture above. That approach has a way of ending very poorly. So instead, in prayer, take baby steps to reprioritize your life to making it one where God is the master. Carve out more time for praying, reading your Bible, spending with other believers, and on loving your neighbors as yourself and your community. Hopefully, friends and family are included in that as well. These are the priorities that the good master has set for us. And by working to spend more time on his priorities, the weaker the grasp those things opposed to him will have over us. There are, after all, only so many hours in the day. Over time, work to spend more of them on our God's pursuits. And here, I caution against thinking in terms of absolutes, though. If you are coveting someone, unless you absolutely have to, don't just cut them off cold turkey from your life. Because to break community with someone for the sake of following God is something that really doesn't make a lot of sense biblically. So far better just to cut back, to reprioritize, to baby steps in a different direction, if possible. But if sometimes, it's also not. The same advice goes to how you spend your money as well. Start to carve out more of what you are spending to be sent to the things that build the kingdom of God in our town, in our church, in our province, in our country, in the world. To spend money to further the work of God is money well spent. Believe that. But hardest of all, this advice also goes to general outlook and how you see the world and others. And just right now in history, I want to look at the world. If you look at the world around you and all that you see is misery, sinfulness, and corruption, and there is nothing good to be found anywhere in it, I can guarantee you that you are not looking through the eyes of the master that loves the creation that he made. Maybe if that is how you are seeing things, the time has come to turn the news off, turn off Facebook, 
And get into the habit of every time you notice that you are in despair about things, pray and try to think of just one thing that you think is good about what God has made. There is always something. Bunnies are cute. You can always be thankful for bunnies. Keep doing that and that will go a long way, especially just about now. And the same thing goes for people that you notice, hey, that you are thinking about objects as well. <laughs> when you notice that you, hey, bye. And the same thing goes for people that you notice that you are thinking of as objects lately as well. When you notice that you are thinking about human beings as less than human beings, remind yourself of the things that are the opposite of what you think of when you think of them. Everybody is a well-rounded person. Make them human again in your mind. Make them human like God sees them and values them. And I guarantee you that you will break the hold that the Master of coveting has over your life. But say that you have given in to covetousness and it leads you into that path of destruction that we saw before. What then? Then, then though it may be hard, still do all of these things. Work to reprioritize your time and your finances and work to set right your relationship with others, though they may be broken already beyond repair. That is possible you got to take responsibility for what you have done. Take responsibility visibly and apologize and work to rectify it and never stop working to rectify it, even if you never get the apology that you want. It will not be easy, but that doesn't mean it's not worth doing. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall not covet. Why should you not covet? Because doing that has a tendency to reorder our lives in ways that are destructive for us and that objectify those around us as well. So instead of having coveting be the master of you, be people who work instead to place God in that position of power over your life. The same God who loves the world, its people, and you. That is how you deal with coveting. And if you do that, you will find a better life than you even knew. Amen.
small group sign up is on the back table. We're going to be doing a lot with small groups this year, and so I would encourage you to sign up if you haven't already. But as for our benediction, we turn to the book of Romans. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in your faith, so that in the power of the Holy Spirit, you may be rich in hope. Go now and serve our God.